Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hi everyone and welcome to My Millennial Money Medical. My name's Dev Raga and I'm your host and in this episode, this is going to be the last episode in the live series and we will focus specifically on the decades in your 60s and beyond and discuss some of the core things you may wish to consider when it comes to your personal finances. Now one of the things that I won't be covering in this episode is aged care. And the reason I didn't is because it's a little bit too complex to be able to simplify in an episode together with other issues. And I think it probably does deserve its own episode. So at some stage, I will get that out in the future. Let's get started. Now, if you want me to discuss a specific topic or if you have a specific question, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or via Facebook. For those of you that are new to the channel, remember the three main aims, education, empowerment, and entertainment. So what are some of the core things you need to think about when it comes to your money at age 60 and beyond? Now, I've broken this down into about five or six um, categories. So um, let's go through each of them. The first one is asset allocation and decumulation strategies. I've done a detailed episode about this in episode 80 and episode 125 as well, if you're interested. And in the latter parts of your life, remember, you probably on average still have about 20 to 30 years of life still to live. Now, to me, that's still an investment time horizon that you need to take into account. In other words, people just don't withdraw all of their money at the time of retirement or at the time of preservation age. Remember, the primary goal during this time of 60s and beyond really is to preserve your wealth such that it can be used for your upcoming expenses. That is the number one goal. I don't think people should worry too much about your money growing in your retirement because hopefully by then you have enough and you've grown your money to an extent that it can withstand some forces in the market volatility. And hopefully by then you've determined what is enough. Now, to be honest, the likelihood is for most of you that are going to retire or semi-retire, your money and your portfolio is still likely to grow in your 60s and beyond. That's if you play the cards right. So let's have a brief discussion here about asset allocation. During your 60s and beyond, your ability to take risks is likely lower than perhaps compared to someone in their 30s. So asset allocation just means you've taken that into account and are balancing your risk versus your reward situation and that you having a strategy to do this is very helpful. So what are some of the principles that you need to think about? I think in your 60s and beyond, and I'm not a financial advisor, so take this with a grain of salt, 
but I think you definitely still need to be somewhat in the stock market in your retirement. And the general philosophy for me is, if you're going to be investing or maintaining a portfolio for around 20 years or more, you need to be in the stock market. If you're going to be in the market for less than 20 years, then you still need to be in the stock market, but you may wish to consider the allocation of it to be lesser. Now, this is a very conservative approach. Most professionals, people who kind of know what they're talking about, and I'm not a professional, recommend the stock market if your investment time horizon is around five to seven years. So then this concept came about called age-based asset allocation. What is it? Now, in the past, there was this sort of generic rule um, when financial advisors used to recommend a split between stocks and bonds based on your age. And this took into account average life expectancy. And the formula was you take 100 and minus your age and the value you get is the percentage allocation to stocks. So using that example, suppose Amy is 62 years old and is considering retirement and her superannuation is 1.3 million. It is currently indexed, which means the portfolio allocation is 90% stocks, uh, which is via index funds and 10% defensive assets. Remember, a defensive asset is less volatile and may provide a better income, while the growth assets may have more capital appreciation. But of course, with it comes the capital loss risk. Now, in this case, if Amy was to use a generic formula, her index fund stock portfolio should be 100 minus 62. So around 38% allocation, and the rest is allocated to defensive assets. This means out of $1.3 million, her growth assets should be, which is usually stock market, around $494,000. And the defensive assets should be usually cash, bonds, etc., around $806,000. Now, I think that's an incredibly simplistic way of looking at things, and I think that's an incredibly conservative way. The newer formulas uh, are based on the rising life expectancy around the world, so they use 110 minus your age. Now, if you were to use that formula for Amy, in that case, the growth asset should be, again, stock market, $624,000, and defensive assets should be around $676,000. Now, I still think this is incredibly conservative, but it's obviously better than the old formula. In episode 80, I really go into the main strategies in asset allocation, largely targeted at accumulation of wealth, but you can still apply to those principles in your latter stages of life. So let's go through some of the various types of asset allocation, because I think that's really important in your latter years, particularly in your retirement and golden years. Number one, strategic asset allocation. Essentially what this means is you determine what the percentage of each asset class should be. And that's all predetermined based on your risk and reward ratio. And only you can determine your own risk. Number two is constant weighted asset allocation. Now, this is when weights of your assets become more dominant in one class compared to the other. So you bring it back to your predetermined percentage. It's a bit like rebalancing. And you do this by selling your winners and buying your losers. Number three is tactical asset allocation. This is when you try and take advantage of market conditions. So it requires a little bit more work and the study of current and future economic conditions. I'm not sure if people want to be that involved in their latter parts of their life in terms of economy and cycles and depressions and recessions and boom times. 
And ironically, if you're retired, you may have more time to do this, bear in mind, but this comes with the risk of messing things up. That's tactical asset allocation. Number four is baseline asset allocation. Now, the so-called insurance method. Now, essentially, you have a base value for your portfolio, and anything above this, you actively invest and asset allocate. And anything below that, you always make sure your base is maintained. Number five is dynamic asset allocation. This is the opposite of constant allocation, where you buy your winners and get rid of your losers. And number six is integrated asset allocation. Basically, it's a category where you mix and match and do a little bit of all of the above. Now, I want to speak specifically about a particular asset allocation called the all-weather portfolio. So what is the all-weather portfolio? It was sort of devised by Ray Dalio. He's basically a billionaire investor and he's the chairman of Bridgewater Associates, which is one of the biggest hedge funds um, uh, that he talks about. And he knows a thing or two about investing. He also predicted the 2008 financial crisis and warned George Bush's administration about it. And amazingly, during the global financial crisis, his fund returned was 9.5% after accounting for fees. That's during the worst crisis in the last 50 years. Now, to me, that's legendary. Interestingly, his backstory is he worked as a golf caddy, during which time he learned wealth tips for his bosses. He's worth about $22 billion, probably more. And what is the all-weather portfolio that he's devised? Now, he reckons people should only put 30% into equities, which is usually US and international, 55% in fixed income securities, of which 40% are long-term bonds and 15% are intermediate bonds. And this accounts for the volatility of the stocks. And 7.5% should be in commodities such as gold and precious metals. And 7.5% should be on others, which is broadly diversified. So you could find an index fund or ETF in each of these categories and just replicate this portfolio and then rebalance it to reflect these weightages. And this is the constant weight asset allocation approach. That is, you've predetermined your asset classes and the weightages for each of them. Now, I think the main reason why this portfolio exists is that it takes into account capital, but also takes into account risk. For example, stock market is far more risky than bonds. Hence, stock market should be representative of a lower portion of your portfolio. And that predetermined percentage here for stock portfolio is around 30%. That's the basic premise of this portfolio asset allocation strategy. Now, apparently, it actually weathers all sorts of economic conditions, which is why it's called the all-weather portfolio. So it's actually really good for recessions, inflation, deflation, growth phase, bull markets, or bear markets. So if you back-tested the all-weather portfolio in the US market, again, this is very US-specific, in the last 30 years, it's had 85% of the time been positive, and that doesn't include covid it averages around 10% annualized returns. The S&P 500 averages around 9.8% over 100 years, so it's relatively similar. But the volatility, it's much lower. And the average loss during the last 30 years, excluding COVID, was 2% per year. Now, if you back-tested it through the following periods, number one, Great Depression, 
the S&P lost 65%. The all-weather portfolio would have only lost 20%. Number two, the average loss on a per-year basis between 1928 to 2013, when it did lose money, was only 3.65%, whereas the average loss for the S&P 500 was 13.66% if it lost money. And between the periods of 1973 and 2002, when markets crashed, the all-weather portfolio actually made money. That's not bad at all. That's actually very good. Considering Australian financial markets closely resemble those in the US, you may want to backtest this for your own situation. The figures I quoted was for US markets. Now, using the same sort of predetermined weight strategy in terms of asset allocation, there is another strategy called Golden Butterfly. Now, this one I only heard about relatively recently. This is basically a variation of the permanent portfolio. The permanent portfolio was suggested by Harry Brown in the 80s and basically comprised of stocks, bonds, commodities, all in equal portions. The Golden Butterfly alters this slightly. They say 40% of your money should be in stocks, US, small caps and international. 40% should be in bonds, long-term and short-term. 20% should be in commodities, mainly gold. Compared to the all-weather portfolio, this is far more aggressive approach. Notice the heavier allocation to gold and no more commodities, no other commodities at all. That's relatively aggressive. Therefore, in markets which are more volatile, the golden butterfly does better in the long term. That is, the golden butterfly assumes global economies will expand over the long term, whereas the all-weather portfolio is more indifferent to economies in general. So what about backtesting the golden butterfly? If you did that, compared to a 100% US stock allocation or S&P 500, the golden butterfly achieves similar long-term returns, but the volatility was much less, similar to all-weather portfolio. The golden butterfly's volatility is 60% less compared to the S&P 500. In its worst year, it only lost 11%. And the backtesting of this covers over the last 40 years. Now, there's a lot to consider about asset allocation, particularly in your 60s and beyond. You could apply a bit of science, a bit of evidence behind your methods. But overall, though, I don't think it's worthwhile complicating things too much. Just try and pick a strategy, keep it really simple and go for gold. The second thing I think people should, you know, try and focus on or try and understand is private health insurance. Now, I did talk about private health insurance in one of the previous live series episodes, and I'm revisiting it again today. Because having private health in your latter years is arguably more valuable than it is in your former years. Now, in your latter years, you may wish to review your private health insurance. I think private health insurance overall is good. Now, I work in the public system And it's also very good. But the public health system does not take into account morbidity. It takes into account mortality. The whole aim of the public system is to provide care for those in urgent need. If your need is not urgent, then it's not a great system. You'll still get care, but you may need to wait your turn. And it doesn't matter how rich or how poor you are. So the public system is designed based on need rather than once, which is fair enough. 
What I disagree with the public system is the morbidity element of it. It doesn't take into account. For example, pain is not considered as important. The common thing in the public system is pain doesn't kill you. Now, you could have crippling arthritis in your knees, waiting for a knee replacement, but the person with a heart condition may beat you to it. Even though your crippling arthritis means you can't work, you may be on disability pension, and your day-to-day life is extreme suffering and painful. Of course, the person with a heart condition has a life-threatening illness and condition, and of course, their life is also important. But in a system which is under-resourced and under pressure, you can see how healthcare workers and departments have to make tough decisions on who gets care and who gets delayed care. Cataracts is another example. What could be more important than your vision? Cataracts impair your vision and therefore impair your lifestyle. Imagine if you're listening to this and you can't see the world as well as you do. That's a big deal. But cataracts are not life-threatening, so it's not considered urgent. So you may be waiting a long time before accessing eye care in the public system. Now, we're lucky in Victoria because we have a dedicated eye near hospital. But I don't think all the other states or territories, correct me if I'm wrong, have their own such hospital specialised in eye near. Victoria is actually quite lucky. We have some of the best trauma centres in Australia. We have one of the world's best children's hospitals in Australia and the world. We have a dedicated women's and children's hospital part of the Parkville Precinct. Our universities, Monash and Melbourne Uni, for example, have been listed as one of the best in the world, particularly in the top 50. And we also have an Ionia hospital. Now, shout out to my mate, who is at the Ionia hospital, one of the bosses there, who I'm sure is listening right now. So Victorians, we're lucky. But here's the deal. Not everyone can access care whenever they want in Australia. A lot of people think we have universal health care in Australia. I'd like to think we do. But actually, we don't. If you go to the government health website, they actually mention this. And here's a direct quote. Medicare is Australia's universal health insurance scheme. It guarantees all Australians and some overseas visitors access to a wide range of health and hospital services at low or no extra cost. Find out what we're doing to improve Medicare for all Australians. Now, the key words there is universal health insurance scheme, not universal health care. But overall, I think we have a pretty good system which needs to be protected and made better and improved upon. Now, something you may not understand or actually be aware of, is Australia actually has a reciprocal healthcare agreement with many countries. Particularly if you're in your 60s and you're travelling, there are some countries that you can travel to and you are covered to get healthcare for those countries. You may not need travel insurance. Because I know that when I see patients from other countries, um, some of the countries, yeah, we don't charge them anything. They come and get their healthcare and go away. And these are the countries. Belgium, Finland, Italy, the Netherlands, Malta, Republic of Ireland, New Zealand, Norway, United Kingdom, Slovenia, and Sweden. So those are the reciprocal healthcare agreements we have. So if any person from that country comes here and they're citizens of that country, we don't charge them a cent. And likewise, we expect the same 
when we actually visit those countries. So I think that's important that you understand that because you may wish to travel in your latter parts of your life or in your retirement. Now, I recommend private health insurance for people as much as possible, provided it's good cover and it's not a rubbish cover because there's a lot of rubbish covers out there. Now, in your older years, here are some advantages for private health insurance. Extras cover. You can get allied health services, which you're likely to use more often. Dental, physio, optometrist, acupuncture, remedial massage, etc., etc. Now, your comprehensive cover covers everything. Now, one of my pet peeves about private health insurance as you get older is if you're on the top cover, the so-called gold cover, you'll be covered for children and babies and obstetrics and having children, despite you probably not having any more children. Now, I've discussed this with many private health insurance myself, and they say they offer free obstetrics cover for the gold package because the most expensive part of the cover is actually orthopedics and ophthalmology. And I think it's worthwhile reviewing your private health insurance each decade to see what is covered and what isn't. But I don't really change my private health insurance very much because I know that I'm on a pretty good cover and I know that in the future cover is going to get less and less because healthcare is getting more expensive. But I think the value provided in extras cover in itself might actually be worth it for you. And as you age, you're far more likely to experience medical issues for which private insurance may come in handy. Having said this, having private health insurance is not compulsory and you can rely on our wonderful public health system, but you just need to be patient and be prepared to wait your turn. The third thing you need to think about in your 60s and beyond is superannuation, how to maximise it during your potentially final accumulating years. Now, I've recently done a massive super series where I talk about all the nuts and bolts of super. It's a three-part series. If you're interested, please go back and listen to that. But here are some basic strategies in your 60s and beyond. You've got to know the rules when you can access your super. For most people, accessing super after the age of 60 is usually tax-free, particularly if you're retired. Consider a transition to retirement plan. You can still work, but draw down on your super to live your best life during your older years. That's always a possibility. Now, personally, I don't think I'll ever completely retire. I probably will do some form of active work, but do so because I want to rather than because I have to. Now, don't forget, if you're still working in your 60s and sometimes in your 70s, you can access the government co-contribution scheme for low-income earners, which is usually around $500 per year. And check your asset allocation in your super. That's really important. We just talked about asset allocation. You can use the same strategies within super. And also check your insurance and your fees. Remember, as you age, insurance becomes very expensive. And hopefully in your 60s, you probably don't need any personal insurance if you've played your cards right and you have enough net worth to be able to cover it. And that's called being self-insured. But at least check your fees. Learn about the bring forward rules. You can bring forward up to three years worth of non-concessional after-tax contributions to top it up. In today's money, that's up to $330,000 straight up to boost your super. So you may be age 60 and beyond or 62 and beyond and you want to bring the last three years of your life forward in terms of non-concessional contributions. That's a pretty good strategy. Learn about the downsides of contributions. Each person uh, at a specific age can contribute up to $300,000 to boost their super. So a couple can contribute up to $600,000 if they wish to sell their home and use the proceeds to top up super. 
Now don't forget to review your beneficiaries in your super. If your children are well settled and independent, maybe they don't need the money. Then maybe take them out and put someone else in. Remember, the whole point of beneficiaries is for them to use your money to better their lives, to give them a helping hand. And learn about binding death nomination and binding beneficiaries, etc., etc. And learn about how super works in retirement phase. Learn about how earnings are taxed. Learn about how drawdowns are tax-free. I was speaking to a consultant obstetrician who's probably listening right now who actually didn't know how superannuation worked in Australia. And we went through everything about super as much as I possibly could in a one and a half hour marathon video conference just for fun because I think everyone needs to know the ins and outs of superannuation. Now, there are loads of things you can do in your retirement phase with your super. These are just some of the tip of the iceberg things that I've talked about. I won't go through all of the concepts again in this episode. Just check out the previous three-part series I've done for a detailed breakdown. And also remember, transcripts for those episodes are also online if you need them. The easiest way to use transcripts is open it and use keywords to find the right things you need. The transcripts are designed and structured in a way for easy searchability. Now, let's take a quick break. And when I come back, we'll go through some of the other things that you might want to do with your money in your 60s and beyond. Be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Now, welcome back. Let's get on with some more strategies to think about in your 60s and beyond. Number four is revisiting wills and estate planning. Now, hopefully, by the time you reach 60s and beyond, hopefully you've got your will sorted out. But I've speak to a lot of healthcare workers who simply have not done their will or estate planning while simultaneously trying to boost their investments in a stage of life where they have debts and dependents. I can't stress this enough. Having a will is the biggest gift and stress reliever you will give to your family and friends. You should revisit your will 
every three to five years if possible, and perhaps every decade, review it with a will lawyer, and it costs around $2,000 to $4,000, depending on how complex your situation is. Now, here are some concepts you need to think about when coming to determine your will and estate planning. Number one is medical power of attorney. Do you have an algorithmic approach on who makes medical decisions in the event you are incapacitated? Suppose your MPOA is incapacitated before you, then you're left with no one. So have a systematic algorithmic decision-making tree is really important when it comes to your health. Number two is having a financial power of attorney. Same, have an algorithmic approach. Number three is beneficiaries. Now, during your 60s, your situation may have changed, everything from grandchildren to family conflicts to new friendships to even new partners. Think about how all of this fits into your will and estate planning. Number four is, I would hope if you're listening and you're in your 60s, you have a will. And if you don't, definitely get one. Please, it's really important. But more importantly, learn about what happens in your estate or in your will when it comes to intestacy laws. It's a system used if someone dies without a will. You'll be surprised. Number five is think about a testamentary trust. Now, this basically means upon your death, your assets are not directly transferred to the beneficiaries, but are transferred to a trustee who holds those assets for the sole benefit of the beneficiaries. The advantages are, number one, tax efficiency. Remember, the tax is only payable at the level of the beneficiary and not at the trust level. For example, if a minor inherits assets and they're under the age of 18, they need to pay top marginal tax rates right from the get-go. But if it's under a trust structure for tax purposes, they get treated as legal adults, similar to capital gains purposes. Now, the gains can be distributed to the lower income earner in the beneficiary tree. Number two is, testamentary trusts are valid usually for 80 years and exhibit an element of control upon your death. Number three is, that means you need someone who you trust as a trustee, which is a big responsibility, and your assets can be protected for up to two or three generations. And it protects your beneficiaries in the event of devious individuals who want control of your assets. And unfortunately, in today's world, there are far too many a-holes out there. So just protect your loved ones. Now, it can also protect against family litigation for your assets. You've got to check with your lawyer about this and how that helps. And lastly, if your beneficiary goes bankrupt, your assets are held under the trustee's name, so they are relatively safe. It's one step away from access to creditors. And here's an interesting nugget. Centrelink doesn't take into account any assets held under a trust for the beneficiary until it hits the beneficiary. Therefore, the beneficiary may still be able to claim benefits because the assets owned by the trust are not the beneficiary. That's a slightly awkward golden nugget in the tax code. Now, having a testamentary trust, although I think is really important, is not all rosy. There are some downsides, mainly. Number one, it requires a level of cooperation from family members who are trustees of the trust. So if a legal challenge looms, it can get ugly. How much do you trust the trustee or your family member? Only you can answer that question. Number two is it's not free. Testamentary trusts do cost money. There are administrative costs, so you need to weigh the benefits versus the cost of running such a trust. 
Number three is capital gains can be distributed to beneficiaries, but unfortunately capital losses usually can't be distributed to beneficiaries. This means the capital losses must stay within the trust and then any future gains can be used to offset that. And number four is depending on the beneficiary's distributions, it can affect their Centrelink. And that's plain obvious, but worthwhile looking into. That is, if the beneficiary's income goes up, then yes, Centrelink are interested. But if the trust income goes up, no, Centrelink are not interested. Now, the other thing about when revisiting your will and estate planning, I think it's always good to leave a letter of wishes called Memorandum of Directions or whatever you want to call it. And the basics of which are your funeral, your expectations for your children or your partner or your grandchildren, your wishes, life advice, maybe um, financial plan. You know, don't expect your executor to know everything. Set out some basic instructions, uh, family law considerations and advanced care directives and your wishes of medical care. Now, I've been in situations where people are about to die and have been diagnosed with a terminal illness. And as a doctor, all I ever used to discuss with patients and next of kin is what their medical issues are, what their final wishes are, and what palliative care arrangements are being made, etc. I don't necessarily participate in the ins and outs of financial, you know, uh, planning or will or legal matters, because I don't think it's my role as a medical practitioner or any healthcare worker for that matter. We shouldn't be really participating in the intricacies of that. And in fact, in the death certificate, when someone dies, it specifically asks you that question. And the death certificate is a legal document. So I don't really interfere in that process. But if someone asked me, hey, do you have any suggestions? I said, these are the issues and these are the concepts and principles that you need to understand. And I think it's fair enough that a healthcare worker assists their patient or the next of kin of the patient in order to sort this out. Because remember, this is a highly vulnerable situation for your patients and their families. And I think as healthcare workers, we have a duty of care, we have a responsibility for their health and their well-being, and part of their well-being is their money. So you shouldn't really be participating in the exact financial advice sector, that's not your role, but if someone asks you about advanced care planning or if someone asks you about will and estate planning, you can probably direct them to some of the concepts. What's an executor? What's a testamentary trust? All that sort of stuff. I don't see any harm in you talking about principles, but you certainly shouldn't be directing them in terms of any specific financial stuff. In fact, that's a direct conflict of interest if you did that. Now, the other thing is healthcare workers also die. Healthcare workers also get diagnosed with terminal illness. So, You know, it's an incredibly difficult situation and it's an incredibly pressing conversation and an uncomfortable conversation that you need to have with people around you. And you don't want to put a lot of burden on those people around you to make very, very difficult decisions when it comes to medical decisions or financial decisions. And they have to deal with a legal minefield uh, and not having enough knowledge or control of the dying person's last wishes. So, you know, because they never thought about it. They never discussed about it. So it's a difficult conversation I think we all need to have. And when I say healthcare workers die or get diagnosed with terminal illness too, we do. I know some that have. And I think it's really important that all of us, yes, we focus on our patients unwaveringly, but I think we should also focus on ourselves and time and time again with, you know, nurses, doctors, pharmacists, 
allied health workers. We are so ingrained in trying to do the right thing by other people that almost universally we tend to forget about ourselves. And I think we need to think about what the airline industry says to all the passengers is you need to put your oxygen mask on yourself first before you can help other people. So for you to be a good healthcare worker, you need to be fit, you need to be healthy, you need to have mental peace, you need to be clinically well, and you need to look after yourself. And part of that is having that reassurance of having a will and estate planning, I think anyway. Now, number five is staying active physically and mentally, why it's important. You know, think about screening tests and health checks. It goes without saying, as you age, your body ages, and therefore you have more prone to health risks. So you need to focus on your health through your life, but more so in your 60s and beyond. Depending on your family history and genetics, you may have good health outcomes in your 60s and beyond or bad health outcomes. Your health is your health. When you're born, you're dealt with a series of cards at birth, and unfortunately, it comes down to pure luck. Some people have great genes and Some people have great environmental outcomes, others don't. So you need to take steps to mitigate those risks as much as possible. You can't eliminate them. Here are some health-related things you may wish to consider about or at least discuss with your family doctor. Of course, health is really important, guys and girls. You need to think about it in your 20s, 30s, 40s and 50s, but you need to think about it a lot more in your 60s. The RACGP is called uh, a book called a Red Book. And you can Google it if you want to. It has some great preventative guidelines for your age group. And it's quite systematic and quite easy to read. And I think it's worthwhile just flicking through the book if you want to. Now, check out the chapter specifically directed at older Australians. It's called Preventative Activities in Older Age. Now, if you're a GP registrar studying for your fellowship exams, uh, listening to this podcast, then the Red Book is examinable. Yes, the whole book. Here are some of the things that it mentions in that book. Some of the things you need to consider. Number one is immunization. If you're age greater than 60, you're more likely to die from influenza than younger people. Think about the COVID vaccination, fourth jab. Think about the pneumonia vaccination. Think about the shingles vaccination. There are all these preventative things that we have for people over the age of 60, which is, you know, potentially government subsidised. So take advantage of it. Protect yourself. Number two is physical activity. Now, generally speaking, 30 minutes a day if you can, mild to moderate exercise. Now, generally speaking, what does that mean? It just means that a simple way to think about it is you need to sweat during exercise and be moderately short of breath. A lot of people say, I walk a lot at home or at work during activities of daily living. Well, that's not enough. Casual strolls are not enough. Weight-bearing exercises are great for your bones and for your joints. And we know that exercise has been shown to reduce the risk of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, stroke disease, and even some cancers. Number three is falls. Now, this is something a lot of people don't think about, but as you age, your risk of falls increases, particularly after the age of 65. Generally, you should be seeing your GP for screening for falls at least once a year after the age of 65. And during that screening conversation, and if you've got elderly parents that you want to help out, this is what I tell them. These are some of the discussion points between them and their GP. Number one is balance. 
inner ear problems are more common in the elderly, like Meniere's disease or positional vertigo, for example. Number two is vision, glaucoma, cataracts. They need to have regular optometry checks and vision checks. Number three is hearing deprivation. Sensory deprivation in the elderly is quite significant. So if you can't hear properly, you're more likely to fall. Number four is peripheral neuropathy, which is basically meaning pins and needles or what we call paresthesias, where you can't feel your legs or it kind of feels like when you're walking, you can't really feel it properly. People with multiple sclerosis often have this problem. If you can't feel your feet due to chronic issues like peripheral vascular disease or diabetes or, uh, like I said, MS, it's an important thing to address. Now think about medication side effects. Think about medications can cause side effects like reduced blood pressure, particularly when you change posture. That's called postural hypotension. Think about cognition. These are all things you need to raise. And if you know someone who's in that age bracket, I think you should tell them to raise it. Dementia. There are various types. There's family history for it. There are various symptoms. It's worthwhile thinking about it and maybe do some basic screening tests. Although on a grand population scale, there's not much evidence for it. But as family members, if you notice your parents, your grandparents, uncles and aunts, if you notice they do odd things, you think it's unusual, I think it's worthwhile speaking up and discussing with them to see their family doctor. A lot of this happens very slowly, insidious. It's a disease that progresses very slowly. And all of a sudden, 12 months later, you notice, wow, things have changed dramatically. The minor things which are left unchecked in your health as you age can creep up on people. It's much easier said than done. Because as you age, legitimately and naturally, you want to maintain your independence. So many older folk may think seeing a doctor would expose them to losing their rights, to losing their dignity. Now, driver's licence is a classic example. When I see elderly folk, when I used to in general practice, that would come in for their fitness for driver's assessment. Vic Rhodes would, you know, get them to fill out a form and, and bring it to me and I'd have to sign off on it. I'd have to do some testing. I could see a lot of people would get very nervous for that. Because the last thing you want to do is be in a position where a doctor tells you that you can't drive a car. I've done that a few times and it's not a great experience for the patient. But it's also not a great experience for me. I don't want to take away someone's independence. Imagine if you couldn't drive a car. I think it's so fundamental that we all take for granted in our younger years. It's a big deal. So I can understand the frustrations and the nervousness for elderly people who don't want to see a doctor because they feel that every time they see a doctor or a nurse or allied health worker, they get bad news. So I think transparency, honesty and open disclosure about some of the concerns you have when you see these things with some of the elderly people in your life, I think it's really important. I think we need to normalise this. Because we're all getting getting old sometime. I am. Most of our listeners are. And we will have the same problems, no doubt. And I think being better prepared is really important. Now, lastly, health-wise, obesity. As you get older, you put on more weight. 
because you are less active, because of other medical issues. This is a silent killer amongst older people, more sedentary lifestyle. It's a huge risk. It all comes down to eating, exercise habits, and it's not something you can change overnight. And when you think about healthcare workers, what's our core business here? What do we do day in, day out? Well, my core business, I think, is changing behaviours. So when someone comes in and does a skateboard flip and um, breaks their ankle and I'm treating them, yeah, I treat the ankle. But hopefully part of the power that we have as healthcare workers is to be informing the patient, hey, next time, maybe wear some braces or maybe don't do the high-risk activities or wear a helmet or do something to mitigate that risk. I think that's part of being a healthcare worker in order to prevent people from getting sick. So I see that as a very privileged position to be in. And certainly if you have a patient who's above the age of 60 or 65 or in their 70s, think about all these things we talked about when it comes to their health from a preventative perspective. Because I think, you know, health is really important, clearly, because I'm a healthcare worker and a lot of our listeners are. And it's our biggest asset. If you prematurely die, you can't enjoy your senior years of your life. So take control, take action, and you'll be better for it. But granted, it's not easy. And lastly, number six, don't neglect growth. Now, one of the things people often may think is you reach an age and that's it. You give up. You just retire. You watch the ocean from the sandy beaches and life is pretty sweet. Actually, that's not how I see my retirement. I don't know many listeners that I know won't see their retirement like that as well. I'll be working, doing things I still enjoy, and I'm likely to work as a doctor or teacher to admin duties in my senior years. With this comes dignity, and with it comes personal and professional growth and responsibility and development. For me, this is really important, because by that time, I don't care about money. It keeps you active, keeps you mentally active and mentally fit, which translates into better quality of life. A Fidelity report in 2021 showed the main reasons why retirees continued to do some sort of work. And these were the main reasons. They enjoy work, 22%. They have a sense of purpose, 18%. They avoid boredom and mental breakdown, 15%. They have a financial need, 14%. Notice it's not very high. They want to keep social, 11%. And they want to maintain community connections, which is 9%. Now, I know a lot of you are geeks and you're thinking right now, that only adds up to 89%. What happened to the last 11%? The answer is, I don't know. I haven't read the full study. This is just a summary. Now, how does Australia stack up to other countries when it comes to mature age of workforce between 55 and 65 years of age? Our participation rate is actually very high, 64.6%. In other countries, the participation is a little bit higher Germany is 71.4%, New Zealand is 76.9%, Japan is 77%, Sweden is 78.4%, the US is only 61%, and Canada is 64.6% as well. Same as Australia. And interestingly, in Australia, between April 2000 and April 2020, labour participation rates increased by 22%. 
The main reasons cited were better health outcomes, meaning able to work longer, greater workplace flexibility, more educational attainment means, less physically demanding jobs, which improves longevity of workforce. They anticipate this trend will continue into the future as many of these parameters are improving also. So what's the evidence that you're going to be happier in retirement? Let's look at that a little bit. Well, it turns out the Western Australia's Life Course Centre actually looked at this. The first three years of retirement are the happiest and lifestyle satisfaction is greatest. But after that, it starts to wane. Interestingly, for low-income earners, it tends to last longer compared to average or higher-income earners. I found this quite interesting. And a 2020 meta-analysis concluded if you retire on time, your risk of mortality in retirement is actually higher compared to someone who continues to work in whatever capacity they can. The WHO analysis reveals after retirement, the risk of depression and dementia increases, accounting for age-related factors. And the likelihood of clinical depression in retirement rises by 40%. That's from the London Economic Affairs Institute. And having said all this, in absolute numbers, the recent Australian Bureau of Statistics showed the absolute numbers are still lower when compared to 18 to 24-year-olds when it comes to clinical depression and psychological distress. In the age of greater than 65, psychological distress was only 9.8%. In the ages between 18 to 24, it was 15.1%. So let's talk a little bit about dementia and retirement. Who's more at risk of dementia and depression in retirement? Retired older women unfortunately have the highest risk of dementia and depression. To me, that was quite surprising. Now, this all sounds great for those that want to work, but what about the financial impacts of working past retirement age? What are some of the results of this? Is it actually financially beneficial? Let's break this one down. The US National Bureau of Economics study in 2018 showed working until the age of 67 instead of 65, can actually increase a retiree's long-term income by 7.75% due to the additional return on investments and potentially lower cost of purchasing annuities, which is bigger than uh, what it is in Australia. And also, it enables the person to make additional retirement contributions. And even deciding to delay your retirement by six months can have a similar impact on standards of living in retirement compared to additional 1% of your salary for up to 30 years. So I find this remarkable. Just six months more work can make a huge, huge impact. Uh, can even add 1% to your salary for up to 30 years. The same trends have also been shown in Australia. So let's summarise the pros and cons of delaying retirement. The pros are number one, helps maintain identity. Number two, allows you to continue to challenge yourself. Number three, maintain collegial contacts and social networks. Number four, employment benefits like cars, private health insurance, etc. Number five is body and mind keeps active. Number six is financially fruitful. And number seven is provide structure for the day. For example, for me personally, I can't tolerate an unstructured day, even during my day off. I have a plan. I try and execute it to the best of my ability. I write things down. And I think, to be honest, it drives my family nuts. Now, the cons of uh, delaying retirement. Your retirement time to enjoy life, so to speak, is now reduced. 
That can lead to health issues if you have mental or physically demanding job. Your partner may disagree with you working. They may have different retirement expectations. You could be unknowingly obstructing younger people's careers. And this is an interesting point, something that potentially happens in medicine more often than not. So if you delay your retirement, you may be taking up an opportunity of a junior doctor or a nurse. The surgeon who keeps their public appointments in their 60s and 70s means less public appointments for younger surgeons. It's as simple as that. The physician who does the same thing means the same for younger physicians. So this is a very stark medical example. I had a great conversation about this with one of my surgical colleagues who's been increasingly frustrated about older surgeons, quote unquote, who continue to occupy positions in the public system, often, you know, very high level positions, which hampers others to progress their career. It's a very touchy topic and a very tricky situation. And quite frankly, it can be ageist. Now, I suspect we all know that one person who keeps hanging around at work, even though their efficiency and effectiveness is suffering in that same workplace. But they turn up every day, they do their work, not very well, and they go home. Now, my view on this is, if someone is able to perform their duties to the best ability and still be productive and match the position's expectations and description, then I can't see any legitimate reason for them to give that up. I don't see age as a barrier. Perhaps younger people should outclass their older peers to show some proof. But this is a controversial topic, and I won't go much into it any further. So that concludes the Life Series, and this episode, Money in Your 60s and Beyond. And I hope you enjoyed this series. I hope it provided a bit of a blueprint for whichever decade you are in, or whichever decade you may be going into. Of course, doing everything all at once is ideal, but sometimes life happens, and I think having a 5-10 to year plan for your life in general, including your personal, financial and investing life, is really important. I'm sure I've missed out some important things, but that's why personal finance is very personal. Of course, realistically, I can't cover everything in every episode. Now, don't forget also transcripts are being slowly uploaded for each episode, uh, and it goes back to episode 80. So if you need to download them, go for it, search it, and find keywords. Now, if you do write an article about a particular concept and you used one of those transcripts, all I ask for in return is a reference, and please link to this podcast channel. And those transcripts are free. And I really appreciate that. Now, the other thing is ratings and reviews was, you know, we're a bit behind in that. So I'm really hoping to reach 500 ratings by the end of the year with Apple Podcasts. If you own an iPhone or Apple product, uh, log on to, you know, My Millennium Money Medical and give a five-star rating and give a review. I really like, enjoy reading those reviews. A positive review is obviously what I would love um, and would really appreciate because I really do try and put a lot of effort into these episodes. They're relatively structured and... um, you know, it takes a bit of time to plan for these episodes. So I really appreciate it if you left a review in whichever platform that you may be using. That's it. That's it for the live series. So the more ratings reviews you have, the more people get access to the podcast, blah, blah, blah. So please keep them coming. My name's Devraga and this is My Millennium Money Medical. And until next time, please make sure you stay safe.
We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 